The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. Hi, this is Intelligent Investor Analyst Mickey Mordek and I'm here today talking with Andrew Saker. Andrew is the Chief Executive Officer of Omni Bridgeway, which was formerly known as IMF Bentham. Omni Bridgeway is a litigation funder that is transitioning to a funds management model, and it's a stock that the Intelligent Investor has recommended as a buy since last September, and it's one we own in our growth and income funds, and one I own personally as well. So having just reported its 2021 results, we thought now would be a good time to get Andrew on and learn more about the company. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Mickey. No, appreciate the opportunity to chat. No worries. So Omni Bridgeway used to be known as IMF Bentham, and it's actually been listed for 20 odd years, uh, which a a lot of people don't know. And the business was kind of a pioneer in litigation funding here in Australia and perhaps even in the world. So I thought we could kind of just start with um, kind of those early days of IMF, you know, the the founders and uh, the, the kind of opportunity, I guess, that they spotted early on and and maybe go into how that that industry has sort of evolved and been refined over time. Yep, sure. No, it's a um it's an interesting history um and in essence it uh, it it listed in 2001 but it evolved out of two businesses uh that were private companies um one based on the east coast, one based on the west coast. Uh, the East Coast business was primarily focused on high-volume, small-value types of claims. Um, the one on the West Coast was focused on high-value, small-volume uh, claims. And they decided to join the businesses together, uh, become listed, and uh, pursue uh, opportunities um, uh, as a listed company. Um it, event, it, it effectively started out of the insolvency industry. And in fact, the acronym IMF um, stands for Insolvency Management Fund. Uh, and that really speaks to uh, the genesis of the industry. Um, so the industry evolved out of uh, an exception to the prohibition against maintenance and champity, um, uh, which was uh, allowed for insolvency-related matters. Uh, and that was the primary focus of um, the business when it first started uh, back in 2001 as a listed vehicle. Um, it eventually evolved and, and challenged the existing paradigms at that stage um, at, at the law that pushed the envelopes uh, to um, develop into other areas. And it um, expanded successfully uh, into other forms of commercial litigation finance. Um, the, the significant turning point really occurred in 2006 uh, with the High Court decision in Fostif, which effectively um, got rid of the whole prohibition um, uh, of, of maintenance and champity and, and opened up opportunities to invest into other uh, broader areas of litigation. Um, that together, uh, coupled with uh, quite a, um, an advanced class action regime, enabled the business to um, accelerate its expansion and develop into um, a specialised uh, litigation funder with a, a significant focus on class actions here in Australia. Um, 
you know, again, it evolved further. It realised the company uh, was a small, small um, market in terms of litigation, and it was looking to other markets. And it first ventured out to the US in in two thousand and ten, uh, and since then has been on uh, you know a pretty rapid expansion um, program. And so the the industry, I guess, is is quite interesting in terms of how that that evolution has sort of happened in each market that you've been in. Has that sort of uh, evolved in the same way, uh, you know, overseas as it as it has here so far? Look, it's it's slightly different, uh, Mickey. It's um, in Australia, it was quite structured and it revolved around that litigation um, that was associated with class actions. Um, overseas, it had to create its own niche. Um, in 2010, there was really there were really only two operators for litigation finance in the US of any great substance, and that was Burford Capital and ourselves. Um, and um, in the overseas model, you know, we explored all different types of opportunities other than class actions, uh, which were effectively um, restricted to us because of the um, the, the way that part of the market evolved. Um, but we were investing into a whole broad range of commercial um, litigation and arbitration. Um, so it was quite different. Um, and one of the key sig- significant differences in the markets is we had a greater appeal to corporate funding overseas compared to what we had here in Australia. One of the things that um, sort of struck me, I guess, when I first came to Omni Bridgeway and first started learning um, about your business was sort of the, the phenomenal uh, track record in terms of the success rate uh, on the actual investments and also the returns that those investments had, had generated. Uh, could you sort of speak about a bit about, you know, how does those, uh, the economics of the, the funding and, um, and how those kind of uh, cases are sort of structured uh, in terms of the returns to, to you as a, as a funder? Sure. Look, this this is really um, a business I inherited. I only joined the company uh, in 2015. Um, and its track record and the economics um, were really the vision of, of its founders, and in particular, Hugh McLernan, um, who has been recognised as, as uh, one of those um, industry leaders with, with tremendous foresight. So it, it essentially based on his thesis of how litigation finance can work and the risks and how to manage those risks. Um, you know, I, I've, as I said, been very fortunate to in, inherit that position. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've um, taken in different directions and, and um, changed um, a, the way we do business today compared to what was originally the position. But um, a lot yeah. of this speaks to, to his record. Mm. Um Look, the, the economics of it are, are reasonably straightforward in the sense that um, we um, source an opportunity, uh, which will be a litigation um, investment, identify the risks, um, we assess what the prospects of success will be uh, and how we can price that risk to, to ensure that we get an adequate return for the risks that we're taking. Um, and that's um, generally been quite a, a successful approach. Um, you know, historically, I think our um, overall success rate uh, is about 85% o- over the last 25 years, the 20 years. So it's been a, um, you know, a proven and, and well-established process. 
Mm. And and I guess the um, most common outcome is is normally kind of a settlement, um, and then kind of some go to actual judgment, and and then it's sort of uh, a little bit more uh, unreliable, I suppose. But um, the uh, so so they they've been sort of funding these cases off their balance sheet, isn't that right, uh, Andrew, for, for quite a long time, and they'd been doing that pretty successfully for fifteen years. So. And then I guess so. You, you mentioned that you joined in 2015. Um, so what what was it that they kind of saw that they weren't happy with? I mean, they had a nice little business that sort of been funding these cases uh, for a long time. They're obviously quite successful at it. So what what were they kind of looking to change? What was the uh, and and I guess what was it about your background that excited them? And what was it about IMF that so, sort of excited you and um, and got you into the into the business? Sure. So, look to, to unpack those questions. Um, my background is um, I, I was involved uh, with a restructuring and turnaround practice um, here in Australia, there in Australia called Ferrier Hodgson. I, I'd been a partner of the practice for about sixteen years, um, and had been involved with um, a number of turnarounds and restructurings around the world. Um, and uh, as part of that role, had significant exposure to litigation finance, uh, both as a consumer, uh, where we used litigation finance to prosecute claims, but also on the receiving end, where a funded claim had been made against... It's not where you want to be. Exactly. No, and, um, you know, I had the pleasure of being... Uh, of that, that experience with uh, IMF at that stage, where they'd funded matters uh, against the, the insolvent estates that we, the, that we were administering. So um, it was with that, that that, you know, I'd crossed paths with uh, IMF um, Bentham. Um, it was uh, clearly a model that appealed to me. Uh, insolvency, notwithstanding its, its negative perception, um, has, a, I think, a very similar type of undertone to litigation finance in that it serves a social purpose. Um, and that was the, the appealing um, opportunity for me, uh, coupled with the opportunity to do something creative outside of uh, a, a restructuring practice. Um, so that's what got me into it. Um, in, in terms of um, the, uh, the, the other opportunities that existed, um, you know, the, the business was um, very much uh, focused on class actions in Australia. It represented uh, approximately um, 80, uh, 60% of the business when, when I first joined. Um, I, I had recognised that that involved a significant amount of concentration risk. And so together with the executive team uh, and the board, we developed a business plan uh, that was to essentially diversify risk. And that diversification involved all forms of um, approach uh, in terms of sourcing, geographic footprint, size, type of case, uh, and as you, you mentioned, capital source. So we'd shifted from being a balance sheet investor to effectively a funds management model um, uh, in, in concept in 2017 and, and through um, execution over a period through to, to 2019 when we launched all of our, our seven funds. Um, and, and that effectively provided us and our balance sheet and therefore shareholders the opportunity to invest in a more diverse range of cases, a greater number of cases where we had a smaller interest 
but in a, in a greater range. And that diversification of risk uh, enabled us to eventually, um, once we transition through that stage to a more stabilised earnings stream, um, you know, we've we've pretty much completed that process now. Um, you know, the, the two largest investments that we had on our balance sheet were, which were Wyvernhoe and WestGem, are now nearing completion. They're not quite complete, um, and with those being finally completed, we will have uh, more or less uh, completed the transition to being a fund manager. Yeah. So just to I guess summarise, so you've got these kind of big lumpy class action cases in some cases they have very binary sort of payoffs and um and so to diversify that you've sort of gone out to geography and different capital sources and um different case types um but also i guess that's a very capital intensive business model i guess you can't necessarily grow that quickly because you have to wait for cases to pay off and and capital could be tied up for 10 years so i guess now you can take outside capital and and that means that you can fund more cases as well. Um, no, that, that, that's exactly right. We, As a balance sheet investor, you're, you're effectively um, uh, hand-to-mouth type of existence where you, you need a matter to complete, to release, to release capital and generate a profit so that you can invest into new matters. Um, and in doing so, that's quite limiting. Um, in 2015, you know, the capital markets had, had a view of us. We were a small company. Um, it was hard to access sufficient capital to, to drive the type of growth that we needed to achieve the diversification and the benefits of diversification. Um, the, the debt markets in 2015 were, were struggling and difficult. Um, so our um, alternative was private equity. And that's where we turned to, to these types of fund structures. Um, since then, we've launched um, uh, five of our own funds. Um, we, we purchased two when, when we um, completed the acquisition uh, of Omni Bridgeway in Europe, uh, and we're in the process of, of uh, marketing for our eighth fund now. Mm. Um, when that closes, that'll put us close to about $3 billion in funds under management. Yeah, okay. So um, I definitely want to talk about kind of the position that you guys find um, yourselves in today. Uh, I thought just before we could do that, maybe just touch on the merger with Omni Bridgeway, because I thought that was um, quite an important one in terms of building out the expertise across the organization. You had a lot of pre-judgment expertise, and my understanding is that they have a lot of post-judgment. So, um, and that's quite complementary. So uh, if we could Maybe just touch on that and kind of the rationale there and how that merger kind of came into to play. Sure. So the thesis of um, the merger was that uh, we wanted to have uh, exposure to Europe uh, and in particular to civil law jurisdictions. Um, all of our business had been focused on um, common law jurisdictions um, like the US, Australia, UK, Singapore, etc. Um, so this was going to give us a broader expansion uh, into a geographic market that we hadn't otherwise been operating. Um, we explored a, a number of opportunities um, and we had identified Omni Bridgeway as our preferred target um, and we opened up a dialogue with them, um, largely because, as you, as you mentioned, they provided us with a, a complementary type of business line. Um, our focus historically had been on um, pre-judgment merits-based type investments 
where um, we took on all of the, the, the merits risk uh, up to the point of judgment. We took on no risk in relation to the enforcement or collectability of that judgment once it was obtained. So we needed a very high level of certainty before we would in make that type of investment. What Omni Bridgeway provided to us was the opportunity to um, take uh, investments that were from the judgment position, so we took no merits risk and only relied um, on recovery uh, to, to generate returns through the enforcement of an existing judgment or award. The theory behind that was basically that the whole would be greater than the sum of the parts uh, in the sense that um, their business would complement ours and together we would generate a greater level of business than either of the individual parts could generate on their own. Um, and that, that fortunately has pro proven to be the case. And, um, you know, since the merger, um, we've generated a number of co-funded investments that both have, uh, have both merits risk as well as uh, enforcement risk. Uh, and that's enhanced um, the business and, and complemented uh, the types of uh, offerings that we can provide to the market. Mm. So I guess before you could kind of only go after cases up until the judgment phase, but now you can really see those cases all the way through to the enforcement stage. And that sort of opens up a whole new number of opportunities. Indeed, you know, it, 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 creates, um, it creates opportunities that didn't exist for us before. Mm. And I noticed as well that um, that transaction was structured in quite a unique way in terms of the, the share-based payments and the, the number of tranches that it sort of vests over, which is a little mm -hmm. bit complicated. Why was it structured that way? It, it, in essence, it was to um, pass on the risk to the vendors um, to prove the business. So we, yeah. we were prepared to buy uh, and pay for assets that were on the balance sheet for Omni Bridgeway uh, that we could touch, feel, assess and measure. But we weren't prepared to pay, um, you know, for the future because it's, it, unfortunately, this business, um, like many businesses, is is driven by the individuals and the human capital aspect of it is, is you know, quite fungible. So if they're not there, then the value of the business could be lost. So it was critical to us to tie um, the uh, purchase consideration to both uh, locking in the human capital and also for them to prove the, the merits of the business. Um, as it's turned out, uh, in the, the first anniversary, uh, so we're, we're not yet quite at the second, but at the first anniversary, uh, they exceeded target by uh, about 60%. Uh, and as a consequence, we're, we're fully we're awarded the full allotment of the deferred variable consideration that you're referring to. Um, it also enabled us to um, ensure that the, the vendors bought into the, the combined business. Um, the merger was, um, you know, critical to to the retention of of those um, those key team mem team members. And and you know, we've been very fortunate. We've had um, almost zero attrition. Uh, from the, the team that uh, merged with us. Um, and uh, I think that speaks to, you know, the quality of the people, um, the, the perception of the merged business. And um, I, we were all very pleased and uh, with, with, with the outcomes that have been achieved to date. Mm. So you've kind of started out as a um, litigation funder here in Australia and then 
more recently you've you've begun to pivot to this funds management model uh, where you're starting to take outside capital you've made a you've made a merger um, and uh, and more recently I guess also the the um, Hugh McLernan has um, I think announced his intention to, to retire um, mm-hmm. so where does that leave you now in terms of you know assets under management uh, the countries that you're in um, number of offices and I guess your culture and um, how you compare now today to, to to the other competitors in the in the space globally? Uh, look, it, it's you're quite right. Hugh has announced his retirement, um, and uh, you know it, it's a, a significant milestone in our business. Um, Hugh has been a, um, a a very important part of the business now for for twenty odd years. Um, you know, he, he came up with the idea of how to actually. Um, monetize uh, this type of business and, and, and make it something that uh, is successful and, and provides that access for justice that was absent in the market to that point in time. Um, uh, so with his, with his, you know, eventual moving on, um, we are going to, you know, have to, to um, compensate and, you know, we've built up a team now. Uh, so a significant, um, headcount growth. Uh, we've we've moved from when I joined, there were forty two staff. Uh, we're now sitting at one hundred and eighty five. Um, you know, we were operating in in two countries. We're now operating in in twelve countries. Uh, we had seven offices. We're now up to twenty, uh, having just opened up in Madrid and Auckland. Um, and uh, it, currently, we've got, as I said, two point four billion in funds under management. Um, about 50% of that's been deployed. There's still 50% of, of dry powder uh, to go on that. Um, with the launch of Fund 8, which is um, you know, expected to be completed before the end of this calendar year, we'll be up to close to about $3 billion in, in, in funds under management. Um, that puts us as, in terms of size and headcount, as the largest litigation funder in the world. Um, our next closest competitor is is Burford. Um, I think they have about 120 people uh, in terms of headcount, and they operate from from six offices in four countries. Um, and then it drops down quite significantly in terms of of, of headcount and um, geographic footprint. Um, it, it, this is a business that we believe uh, requires scale to succeed. Uh, that provides us with the sourcing opportunities and to, to generate the number of uh, investments that we need to ensure there is diversified risk uh, within each of the portfolios that we manage. Um, but it also provides us with uh, you know, management of risk in relation to the, the couple of critical areas of competition and regulatory intervention um, that exist in, if you operate in any one single market. So the diversification is quite important. From a cultural perspective, uh, look, it, it, it has evolved as every business does. Um, and, you know, we run uh, an organisation that now has a very much a global imprint. Um, you know, previously we're, we were an Australian company that um, exported our business to uh, overseas um uh, venues, but now we are very much a global business, and uh, you know we have key executives based in each of our key markets, um, and they contribute to uh, the culture and and the the goals of the business. 
I guess the, the opportunity in front of you, you know, as you scale, um, you know, and grow those assets under management is, is, um, is quite interesting. Um, I guess one of the criticisms or one of the questions people have about a business model like yours is that, you know, you've kind of come from a position where you've been funding cases on a small scale in countries that you know really well, and you've been able to be very picky with your cases. How do you sort of scale up that, that process? Um, what can you just tell us a little bit about the process, the actual case selection process, um, you know, how, um, how that's done and how you can, how you can be confident that you can sort of scale that up and not, not kind of sacrifice on, on returns. Um, sure. There's many different ways to scale the business. And, um, you know, I, I guess focusing on the one, one area that you, you've touched upon. Um, so we, we um, go through a process where we've got about 85 investment managers. They're all qualified lawyers, um, 15 to 25 years post-qualification experience on average. Um, we have a, a boots on the ground approach, which is why we've got so many offices in so many different locations. That boots on the ground approach uh, is uh, enables us to source opportunities um, at an earlier stage and uh, get involved with them so that we can do the underwriting and due diligence process um, in, in, in a local environment, being able to speak to the witnesses, have a look at the evidence and um, get comfortable with the risks that we're taking on. Um, we, we generally um, only fund uh, less than 5% of the investments that we see. Last year, uh, I think we had just over 1,700 um, in funding applications and we funded something like 4.4% of those applications that had been received. Um, we have a, a system and a, and a process that's been developed over 20-odd years at, at the uh, IMF Bentham side of it and over about 35 years at the Omni Bridgeway side of it. Um, and that process and system has identified, you know, the, the issues that we need to be um, aware of, the red flags, the positives, um, the pricing that works, that doesn't work. Um, and so we've developed that um, track record for being able to produce you know, reasonably high returns on uh, individual cases, which um, uh, address, you know, with combination, the diversification issues that we need to, to, to manage. Um, but it, it is, that's only one element of scaling. Um, you know, from, from an other aspects of scaling, you know, we've got 85 investment managers. Um, they're each uh, charged with the responsibility of, of trying to identify a certain uh, value of investments per annum um, where it's been very low. We've been growing that and we're able to achieve economies of scale by increasing the um, investment targets for each investment manager. Um, in addition, uh, in terms of, of scaling, um, you know, we're looking at, at opportunities for monetization of investments where we will actually acquire the underlying investment rather than just act as a, a commissioned agent or, or a, um, you know, an agent where we receive portion of the returns. Um, so th there's plenty of ways to scale it. Uh, the fundamental issue is that litigation finance, whilst growing in awareness and acceptance, still only has about a 5% penetration rate into the total addressable market, um, which provides significant headroom for, for growth. Um, I don't ever expect the business to grow to, to a stage where we, we have you know, 20% 
for example, of, of um, market share, um, that our biggest competitor is self-funding and I don't think we will ever be able to, to shift the dial to that level. But I do expect that there will be opportunities to double market penetration over time uh, and in doing so, you know, grow the capacity to uh, invest more and more capital. Mm. Yeah, so, and I guess a lot of people, because you, 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 as, you, as you've scaled, you sort of built up this referral network, um, you've got these processes in place that are sort of time time tested and um, you've sort of got that expertise. So people that, um, you know, is it possible, because a lot of people think, you know, if I've got some capital and I've got some good lawyers, can I kind of enter this market and compete with you? Um, and there must be a lot of people trying to do that, I guess, if you're getting good returns. So do you see that as a, as, as a threat? Look, there's, there's no doubt that there's reasonably low barriers to entry um, to, to commence a litigation finance business. In fact, you know, as you say, any two good lawyers with uh, with a hundred million bucks could open, you know, hang a hang a shingle out and become a litigation funding business. The the proof in the industry, or what we've seen over time, is that um, that actually doesn't work. Uh, and that's that's for the very reasons that we'd identified back in 2015. Concentration risk is is the key. Um, problem with mm. the business. You need scale to achieve diversification to provide for um, those risks that can be mitigated against the binary outcome of a win or a loss. Mm. Uh, and um, so we, whilst there might be low barriers to entry, there are, in our view, very high barriers to be successful in this industry. And those very high barriers really come down to scale, um, track record, experience, um, what we call an extended product service, which uh, which is a combination of the provision of capital, both human and financial, uh, to to the management of risk, um, as well as you know we we think um, a mixture of different um, legal aspects of uh, of risk exposures to to different jurisdictions as well as different case types. Before we kind of push on to the um, the opportunity, which I, I really want to get to. Um, I'll talk a little bit more detail about that. Um, another snag, I guess, you've got kind of two that pretty common, uh, you know, um, concerns about the business is a lot of, some people think that, you know, litigation funding um, isn't necessarily, it, you know, takes up court time and it's, you know, expensive for businesses to deal with it. Um, and there's also increasing kind of regulation um, in the industry. How do you guys think about that? And do you see it as having... Um, yeah, what's your what's your view on 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 those issues? Well, from 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 a perception that of whether or not litigation funding is good for society, the, the fundamental issue is that litigation is expensive, and even even the most solvent corporates would agree that funding um, litigation expenses. Uh, is is a drag on your PL, a drag on your return to, to shareholders. Um, it, it sucks up management time. And as a consequence, um, you know, it's, it's an enormous cost. Um, and often, you know, for them, produces little um, movement in, in terms of their, you know, asset position or their return on equity. Um, so litigation finance provides a solution for both solvent and the impecunious to offlay the risk of um, of litigation. 
it provides the impecunious with the opportunity to, um, you know, fund litigation against deep-pocketed defendants who would otherwise outspend them uh, and deny them the opportunity to have access to justice. So I, I think, notwithstanding the very, you know, vocal and vitriolic opposition to litigation finance, there is a fundamental um, acceptance that litigation, even by our opponents, that litigation finance provides uh, a benefit to society. Um, and, you know, the recent regulatory um, reform movement, um, particularly here in Australia, uh, that has been focused on litigation finance has on every occasion acknowledged the benefits of litigation finance. So I think that is beyond dispute. Um, in terms of the regulation aspects, we're, we're a big supporter of regulation and have been for um, many, many years since our inception. Regulation, from our perspective, legitimises the industry. Um, you know, without regulation, you've got uh, a, a, a series of participants that can act as cowboys. You end up with um, outcomes that are, are not consistent with, with the goals and the aspirations of, of you know, true uh, industry uh, participants like ourselves. Um, and so regulation, I think, is an important uh, evolution. W what has been in, um, uh, developed here in Australia to date has been a positive you know, to have licensing for uh, litigation funders is is to require them to prove that they're financially capable of completing their obligations. Um, to, to have those administered as MISs is a little more controversial. You know, it's, it's a cumbersome um, procedure. Um, and I don't think ideally suited for litigation finance. And, you know, we've seen a, a recent... A decision uh, handed down by Justice Beach where, where he identified exactly those issues of uh, the difficulties that exist within the MIS regime as they apply to, to class actions. But overall, regulation is, is a positive for the industry and it's been a positive for our business since, since licensing has been introduced. Um, in the three years prior to licensing, we had launched two class actions. In the one year since licensing had been uh, introduced. We've launched uh, six class actions and we have seven in the pipeline. So uh, for us, it's been a positive development. And uh, and I guess, as you said earlier, you know, the, the risk of, you know, adverse regulation in any one jurisdiction as you, you know, you expand into all these other markets as well as hopefully um, being diversified away a little bit as well. Indeed. Um, Indeed. So, uh, so yeah, so I guess so for, for you as well now, so you've gone from zero to two and a half roughly in funds under management in, um, in a few years and, and you you know, you're hoping that'll be closer to three by the end of this year. You're aiming for five um, by 2025. Um, so, what's what? What I guess is the demand like? You know, from an investor's perspective in this asset class. You know, from where I'm sitting, you know, you're looking at pretty great returns. Uh, the non-correlated with the general market. Are you seeing and in, what's investor appetite like for your products at the moment? Um, do you see like any challenges on the horizon in terms of raising capital? Um, and do you see that $5 billion as a, as a natural kind of upper limit or is that just kind of a milestone, uh, do you think? Yeah. 
So, so look, our three sources of capital are, you know, the same as everyone else. We, we, we have public equity, private equity and debt, and we access all of those opportunities. Um, of course, we've got internally generated profits, which get reinvested, but those are our, our three primary sources, the public equity, private equity and debt. And um, in each of those, we've seen, um, you know, significant appetite. Uh, and as you say, for the reasons uh, that are, um, you know, there's reasonably attractive returns. It's an uncorrelated uh, asset class. Um, it's an alternative. Uh, so it's got a, a lot of uh, tick the box type of uh, opportunities. I, I think one thing that is often underestimated or understated is the ESG aspects to uh, litigation finance. Um, you know, it, in its purest form, um, uh, litigation finance provides uh, a, an opportunity for investors, both at the private equity and public equity side, to participate in um, an investment class that is absolutely attuned to access to justice. Um, so from that perspective, it, it satisfies those needs. Um, so we're not, we're not seeing any deterioration in appetite for um, you know our products and, and our stakeholders in the in the private equity side public equity side and debt are all very keen to continue or to uh, escalate their investments um, in terms of the five billion look that's a, a we we have rightly or wrongly developed a process where we have five-year business plans and that that largely is to be consistent with um, the, the type of investment duration that we have for our underlying investments. It's, it's very hard to turn the ship of, of our company because our investments generally last on, on average, you know, three years for pre-judgment investments and four years for post-judgment investments. Uh, and therefore, we set five-year business plans. And our second five-year business plan, which which took us from FY21 through to FY25, is to increase our funds under management from 2.5 to 5 billion. Um, I don't think it's a ceiling. I think it's the next reset point. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll reassess um, what the next stage of growth will be from there uh, in, in, you know, 20. 24 when we start work on our 20 and uh, our third five-year business plan and so in terms of uh industry consolidation and things like that as well uh, i guess you've had the merger with uh omni bridgeway and you've, you've spoken a little bit about the need for scale diversification access to those kind of referral networks what do you see from here in terms of the the industry um i guess landscape there's no doubt there will be opportunities for M&A um, uh, uh, in the future, whether it's through um, horizontal or vertical integrations will be um, interesting to see how that evolves. Um, you know, whether there are going to be consolidation of, of litigation funders and, you know, uh, uh, acquisition of, of peers um, will be interesting. I, I don't think it's likely in any material way. There may be some peripherals. There's um, there's a growing secondary market, which may in fact address some of those types of issues. Um, in terms of, of, um, of verticals, I suspect there will be opportunities to look at how you can um, build your service line. Um, and in doing so, expand your product offering. Um, the, the key 
we call ourselves litigation finance and, you know, we, we invest in pre-judgment and post-judgment and such. But the, the fundamental issue is that we are managers of legal risk. Um, and in doing so, and we provide human and financial capital for the management of legal risk. And legal risk is, is such a broad uh, descriptor that it, it encapsulates a whole range of opportunities that could present themselves to us. And in doing so, um, I think that will create M&A opportunities in the future, probably more so than peer-to-peer type of um, mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you've kind of got this, uh, you know, healthy underlying demand now for the underlying assets and you're kind of moving more into international markets. There's some uh, opportunities potentially on the horizon maybe for some M&A at some point. Um, to, what about the near-term outlook? I guess you, you touched on kind of Wyvernhoe and West Gem and I guess there was a couple of um, maybe not preferable outcomes from, from your perspective. Uh, and there's sort of been a, a couple of years now where it's been a bit of a lack of, of profitability, um, at least from an accounting point of view. Um, should investors be worried about that? Um, how do you think about that? Um, I noticed that as well that you've started to break out the net cash generation, which isn't exactly an, out, um, an accounting term. But um, how, how do you kind of think about that at the moment? There's no doubt our business is complicated to understand from an IFRS accounting perspective. And that's largely because of the way we are required to consolidate funds into the balance sheet and to account for external interests as as NCIs, as non-controlling interests. Um, And that's then further complicated by the different waterfalls that exist for each of our funds. Some which are European fund models, some of them are American waterfall type models, which differentiate on um, uh, the way that the cash is returned to our balance sheet and to our shareholders. Um, Because of all that noise associated with those issues, we've been steering for the last couple of years um, investors towards looking at the business from a pure cash perspective. Um, And, you know, how much cash does the business generate? And how much is it capable of being of, of generating in the future? Um, and and to effectively park the IFRS analysis and just focus on those. Uh, so look, we, we do report um, both IFRS. Obviously, we're required to, um, and we report very much on a cost basis. Um, and because of that, you know, we have a harsh accounting outcome where we have an adverse outcome, as you mentioned in in say Westgem. Uh, where we've had to make a full provision for it. Uh, Wyvernhoe, you know, is a little bit different. Um, you know, we, we invested 30 million bucks in that and uh, will in, uh, effectively make $120 million out of it. So it's it's not been a, a bad investment from a MOIC perspective. From an IRR, I think it sits at about 20%, um, which is still a good outcome, but very low by our standards. Um, and that, that's because, you know, it's a, an investment that commenced in 2014 and we won't see the cash until the end of 2022. Um, so from a pure accounting perspective, you get a lot of noise. So hence the, the reason we've been guiding people towards cash. We've got these terms of art that we've developed called EPV and our long-term conversion rate, which 
in as a as a function of each other generate what we call an implied embedded value, um, and that's to try to bridge the difference between us as a as a caustic effectively a cost reporting um, company to some of our peers such as as Burford who report on a fair value basis and and actually build into their bake into their balance sheet and P and L these fair value adjustments um, which we don't do. Um, but we need to be able to show the public capital markets, you know, a point-to-point -point comparison or at least a proxy for that point-to-point -point comparison so that, uh, you know, we, we can adequately compete for capital. Mm. Yeah, so I guess the big difference is, for example, Burford will, because um, I guess when you fund a case, they have these kind of positive expected outcomes. And so, but you record them at cost. Whereas I guess um, the the other accounting treatment is that you can take fair value gains on those assets and book profits along the way, um, and I guess your your cons your accounting treatment would be more conservative because you don't book those profits along the way. Oh, absolutely, even if, yeah. <laughs> you know, it would it, it, Mickey, it would make our lives a lot easier to be able to do fair value accounting because you could, uh, you know, you quite frankly can report profits even though they aren't realised and. Mm. Um, you know that that uh, that might have been a, a, an astute decision um, by Burford to, to move down that path. Um, I, you know, it's not a, a direction we wish to go um, because I think holding a conservative position is is a, a necessary part of of um, you know our explanation to shareholders about how we conduct ourselves. Um, being transparent, hiding in the open being fully disclosive, if not somewhat of an over-discloser, um, is, is how we prefer to see ourselves. Great. And uh, so you've got a lot of cases coming uh, to completion, I guess a bit, a bit of a backlog because of COVID in the US in particular, but you've got, um, judging by uh, your most recent report, you've got a lot of cases coming uh, over the next one to two years. Um, so, I mean, that, that looks promising. What are the key metrics, you know, investors should keep an eye out from here uh, to just make sure the business is moving in the right direction? And what are you really focused on, I guess, moving moving forward? Uh, look, we're, we're focused on completions because that's where the cash gets generated. And as you say, I think the majority of completions are going to be occurring in 2023. Um, 2022 is, is going to be reasonably light. Um, uh, compared to 2023, which is when the bulk of that backlog in COVID cases will, will come through, uh, particularly in respect of our first fund um, after the capital has been repaid to their investors, which, which occurs this year. Next year is when we, the balance sheet, gets to see the bulk of the profits and the return to capital. Um, so, uh, you know, definitely the conversion of completions is, is one of the metrics. The growth in annual commitments is, is another key metric that investors should keep an eye on uh, because that's the investment in future income. Um, and if we're not making investments into um, commitments into new cases, then at some point in the next two to three years, there's going to be a hole in the cash flows. So that's why a continued growth in um, annual commitments is important. A continued growth in some of those metrics that, as I said, are terms of art for our business, the EPV and the implied embedded value are, um, again, key metrics that investors, we encourage investors to focus on. 
Great. Well, um, yeah, I think that's that's been great today, Andrew. You know, it's it, it is kind of a little bit easy to get, you know, lost in the weeds when you when you first come to your business. But um, I think we've hopefully done a decent job of making it um, a little bit simpler. But um, so yeah, look, looking forward to kind of watching how you, how you guys go over the next few years. And um, yeah, thank you for your your time today. Thanks, Mickey. Appreciate the opportunity.